I'm Alex. And I'm Brandon. Hey, Brandon. Do you remember when websites that looked as crappy as Newsmax were not taken seriously? Do you remember Polly Sci? Welcome back to another, and this one, post-Thanksgiving episode of Remember Polly Sci. I'm Alex. And I'm again, Brandon. We're just doing and a I double just let intro. Everybody know. I'm, I'm Alex. Oh, <laughs> oh my. Wow. Um, okay. So things have continued to be interesting. And I keep hoping we're going to have a nice, boring episode one of these days, Brandon, where we can just like nitpick each other and have some brotherly rivalry. And we're going to get that. I don't think we're going to get that until January 20 or maybe even beyond. Ah, uh, I just I keep I keep wishing that the news is going to calm down. But, you know, I do want to get to some more specific questions. But before we get into that, I mean, what's on your mind, Brandon? What's been going on for you this last week? Uh, you know, a whole bunch. I've been ascertaining my feelings from the depths of my mind. And Emily Murphy from the GSA <laughs> ascertained that Biden is the apparent <laughs> winner. I, I didn't know where you wanted to start with that. I had a couple of thoughts, but is there anything you wanted to kick that off with? Just Yeah, I, okay. So let's. Important. I want to just relive the moment of that occurring because, you know, I had been checking the news, waiting to see what was going to happen with the lawsuits. I think that was the day that Michigan was supposed to uh, certify the vote for Biden, right? I think it was on like last Monday. And it was very unexpected. I was just like refreshing CNN for like the 20th time that day. And all of a sudden it came through and we had talked about this on a previous episode. So I sort of knew the process. I knew who Emily Murphy was. I knew she worked for- Actually, what does it mean? What when we say the GSA has ascertained that Biden was the apparent winner, what does that mean in function? Like what does that, what does that mean? I'm surprised you're asking me that question because we talked about it for like 20, 30 minutes last episode. But just to recap it for- I'm a high context person, so I like to set the table every time we talk about it again. Oh, no, and I'm a really hungry person, so I like when the table is set for me. Um, (laughs) So, you know, the the General Services Administration is a government body that controls resources regarding presidential transitions. Yes, they. Yeah, exactly. That's the most important thing is that they be able to get their IKEA budget. The, literally, so that, the point the point of the agency really is to like pay rent on federal buildings and and get furniture. But they do have this other function that is apparently highly important that not many people thought about before. Right. And so once a and and Emily Murphy made this point in her letter, and I wanted to read a little excerpt from it because I actually found the everything that happens with the Trump administration is unfortunately interesting. Emily and I Murphy thought it was, is the director of this agency. Right. And I thought it was by Trump. Right. Appointed by Trump. And, you know, she she stated in her letter that she was acting under her own, you know, her own uh, morals, her own guidance. Nobody asked her to go ahead and move forward with this letter. In fact, I'm going to read a little quote from what she said. She said, contrary to media reports and insinuations, my decision was not made out of fear or favoritism. Instead, I strongly believe that the statute requires the GSA administrator ascertain, not impose, the apparent uh, the apparent president elect. And so she, by releasing this statement, this letter of ascertainment, it basically frees up some money and resources to Joe Biden in particular. And I thought about how Joe Biden must feel. I mean, even though I know he's a successful guy, getting a letter saying that you just got access to $6,300,000 plus another million dollars, that must be kind of exciting for Joe Biden, right? Don't you think, do you think that puts a smile on his face? It definitely does. It's a big deal, right? Like you said, it frees up federal funding and allowed Joe Biden and his transition team 
to register buildbackbetter.gov, not .com. It basically is one of the legal functions that that say we now have a president-elect. And one thing I wanted to say about this is when you compare the letter of ascertainment that Emily Murphy wrote to the letter that was written by the director of the GSA at the time when Obama became president-elect, that I saw a side-by-side -side of the two letters the things that struck me were, one, how much Emily Murphy talked about herself in this letter. And the other thing is, it's kind of rude. Like, the the letter that Obama got addressed him as president-elect. It congratulated him in the in the, the first lady-elect. The, the letter from Murphy does not call Biden the president-elect. It says Mr. Biden. And also, at the end of the letter that Obama got, it said from the director, you know, I'm available to help you in any way I can. The letter from Murphy to Biden says, if you need anything, contact this other person. Like, to me, it was as much as she was protesting that it wasn't political, that she wasn't pressured. It was dripping with something less than professionalism. And also, it should be noted, too, that like the moment that letter was released, Trump went on Twitter and said it was his decision that this had happened, which was completely contrary to what she had just got done saying in the letter. I mean, let's 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 just step back from that for a minute. Do you think there is any possible reality where Trump didn't already know this was going to happen and didn't totally read the text did. of this he letter? Had of he course, had something he did. To do with it. Like, He's a it, micromanager. I mean, and that's the thing is his the the administration that he has built has a general distaste for anything that they see going against their interest. And Trump's interest is very much staying in power. And I'm sure that this woman, you know, you know, personally does not agree with this transition. I think a lot of them are drinking the Kool-Aid. I really do. I, I question the ability of anyone in that administration to not sincerely believe that they should continue to fight even though the election's over. I think that they believe that is their job I think and that is their duty. I agree with you. I think it's clear that she is acting in a partisan manner. I don't think that she's fit to be a director of anything in public service for the rest of her life. And the other important thing about this letter of ascertainment, which finally happened, is that Joe Biden can now receive classified uh, presidential daily briefings. This came from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, saying that following the statutory direction of the Presidential Transition Act, of which that letter of ascertainment was part of that direction, Biden can now receive these briefings. Trump again took credit for this for this uh for this decision and it's really odd because part of me is like well trump is definitely pulling the strings as much as humanly possible but then at the same time i think that there are machinations that are kind of moving forward against his will that he then has to pretend are his idea right i think this letter of ascertainment for example Part of it was the pressure that congressional Democrats were putting on Director Murphy. They were calling her to a hearing on Capitol Hill. They were probably getting pretty close to subpoenaing her for her to explain why this decision had not yet been made. So it is funny. On the one hand, you have people digging their heels as much as possible. And then on the other, when things finally break, Trump is trying to claim that it was my idea all along when it definitely wasn't. Well, and I think there are some intelligent folks still around Trump. I'm, I'm thinking about like Pat Scipione or however you say his name, the uh, one of Trump's personal attorneys who is not responsible for any of the, uh, you know, any of the court cases that they're bringing forth with these ridiculous allegations of voter fraud. But um, there was I've read some some 
articles that, you know, some of the more mature people around Trump are saying, look, this this could look really bad for you going forward if, you know, something like a 9-11 were to happen and because of this lapse in intelligence, you know, you were found partially at fault. And it's just, you know, you got to get moving on this. We really can't sit any longer. But I agree. It is so hilarious to watch Trump hold these two completely opposed ideas in his head, right? Because you can see him struggle with them since Trump doesn't plan anything. He doesn't write things down before press conferences. He just says whatever comes to his mind and he sort of, he'll vacillate vacillate between saying, you know, if the other administration comes in or when they do, and then he'll say something as extreme as like, there's no way I'm leaving. It's utter fraud. So it, it's kind of interesting. It's like he's got to stay, he, he's, a, he's a showman, right? He's got to stay on his talking points. Yeah, and this happened again yesterday when he was giving a briefing in the diplomats room. By the way, you need to see this picture of him sitting at this little tidy desk with these unadorned Christmas trees behind him, and he looks honestly like a child at the kids' table at Thanksgiving. It was really funny. He literally said in one <laughs> breath, he said the election was rigged, I'm going to win, this may not be my last Thanksgiving here, but then he also said if the electoral college votes for Biden, that of course he'll be, he'll respect that. And it's like, dude, it's not even your choice. Um, and by the way, speaking of of rulings and speaking of court cases, wait, wait, wait. Before you get into that, I want to back up because I, I watched that news conference too. And okay. what actually struck <laughs> me, and he did, he looked like a petulant little child at the kids' table. He's a, he's a big guy. I mean, he's a big, kind of an imposing figure, honestly. Yeah, he's, he's like six two, three hundred. Like, he's all hunched over and his, you know, he's all crammed into the corner and he looks super pissed and he is pouting. You can tell he's pouting. I mean, the dude is obviously depressed right now. But, you know, one of the reporters is, is just sort of needling him about like, you know, what, what are you going to do and what are you going to do? And at one point he just bursts out and he says, don't you ever talk to the president like that. Don't you ever talk to me like that. You, you, you know, I'm going to go to another person. You're, you're a lightweight. You're a lightweight. And it's just like, dude, these people are doing their job. They're asking you questions and you're treating them like your mean dad at the Thanksgiving Day table. And it was just hilarious for me to watch. It's just, I mean, the guy doesn't have a good answer for a lot of these questions, so he just has to dismiss them. Anyway, I, that's the last thing I wanted to add about that. No, that's good. And props to the press corps who, you know, sometimes when, and Trump has not taken questions at all lately. I did, this is the first time he's taken live questions from reporters since before the election, I think. But props to them, because sometimes if Trump moves on from someone, a different reporter will ask a completely different question. But the reporters were kind of following up for each other, which is what has to happen when you're trying to hold elected leaders accountable. We actually need to rethink the way our um, reporters and how journalism how they approach that kind of stuff because they really do need to be backing each other up in those moments if there are important questions being asked of elected leaders it shouldn't matter whether or not it's your publication asking the question reporters really need to have each other's backs in those moments and that's what happened there and it was good to see um, well and trump is trump is so good at filling the role of content editor for the country and and trying to ga trying to engage the dialogue that is beneficial for him but really there's two stories right now that need to be you know need to be looked at by the public and one is covid and the other one is the presidential election that we had and whether or not it's going to be honored those are like the only two stories that really matter right now trump's Absolutely. you know off in some weird 
right-wing corner of the internet talking about all these crazy conspiracy theories, and it's a big waste of everyone's time in the media. I mean, that's that's why Trump is constantly demonizing the media. He doesn't want to have a check or a balance on his ability to frame the conversation into whatever's going to be most beneficial for him. Absolutely. I mean, you see that all the time with elected officials, and particularly with Republicans. You're right. They'll hear a question. And then they will literally just talk about whatever they want. So if you don't, <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you don't, if you don't have reporters following up with that, then it doesn't, it does, it, like they're not held accountable, right? Um, and I do want to talk really quick about court cases. So just if anyone's keeping track at home, Trump, oh man, Trump is one for thirty-eight so far. <sighs> thirty-eight in his post-election lawsuits. Remember, it used to be two. One of those two wins was overturned, and now the last remaining win they have is over a couple dozen uncounted ballots. None of these have to do with fraud. But there was another case. Another ruling came down that uh, in Pennsylvania, which was trying to like you know reverse their certification or throw out their election. And this judge said that there's nothing in the merits of their case that when you're bringing something so serious, you need to have specific claims and evidence that this case has neither. And it's really funny because Trump's lawyer says that it's part of the activist judicial machinery and they're ready for the Supreme Court. Well, this Trump was appoint this judge was appointed by Trump. So this is a Trump appointed judge making this determination. And the other thing too, even if this case does get to the Supreme Court, and maybe this is getting the weeds a little bit, but all it's going to do is kick it back down to the original district court where that judge called it a Frankenstein's monster, just a complete tortured case. None of these court cases are going anywhere. So I guess what I'm trying to say is as much as we hear about, well, they're still in court and all this stuff, none of these cases are going anywhere. And I don't know if you want to argue me that point, but it's I don't if, if for as much as we do have to worry about what's happening right now, the court has been holding really firm. And that's I mean, something you can bank. And I well, yeah, but your your talking points, Brandon, unfortunately, are like an hour too old because I was just reading this morning that <laughs> the Kraken has been released and this oh mythological Lord. beast is about to do everything that all the lawyers that already quit Trump's campaign and Rudy Giuliani couldn't do. And the Kraken has taken the form of an incredible, one of the most fantastic lawyers, Sidney Powell, a woman who was, uh, I think, was it like last week, the Trump campaign um, said, oh, this, this woman's not associated with us at all, even though she was standing behind Rudy Giuliani at one of the press conferences. Even and spouting though she these... was introduced by Trump on Twitter as part of their legal team. Yeah, when yeah, you're, when you're right. too extreme for Trump, you are pretty extreme. Yeah, pretty extreme, except for that uh, there is, she's not alleging this. This is the way it is, Brandon, and it is all laid out in the lawsuit, in the complaint. I was reading it this morning. This is a secret international cabal involving communists, globalists, George Soros, Hugo Chavez, the Clinton Foundation, the CIA, all of the evils of the Democratic Party are involved. Thousands of Democratic and Republican officials, including, and these say, two and are- Republicans, yep. And Republicans, yes, in, named in the suit in, and she's she's filed, I believe, suits in Pennsylvania, uh, Georgia, as well as Michigan. Now she's going to get all those votes thrown out. All those states are going to flip back to uh, Trump for sure. And she's suing in Georgia. They're suing Brian Kemp and your personal favorite. What's the guy's name? Raffensperger? Raffensperger? Raffen, yeah, um, Raffensperger, the Secretary of State Republican out of Georgia. And if you think this is a nothing burger, Brandon, and I am arguing with you, all you need to do is read her complaint and she has multiple witnesses 
under oath willing to testify and insinuate that they thought they maybe saw something that looked kind of weird on a couple of ballots and therefore the whole election is a fraud and needs to be thrown out and if you have any counter evidence you need to show it to me now brandon i think the funniest part about this kraken which i mean we ke she kept saying weeks ago i'm going to release the kraken claiming she had so much irrefutable <laughs> evidence that the election would be overturned right and her Kraken is literally a rehash of legal arguments that the Trump campaign has already tried and failed. When they keep saying affidavits, you're right. It's literally people making claims about things. That's not irrefutable proof. And it's also really funny. I mean, just the lack of professionalism. When you look at the filings that Sidney Powell made in both Pennsylvania and Georgia, she managed to misspell the word district, as in the United States District Court and the District Court of whatever state she's filing, she was able to misspell the word district not once, but twice in the same sentence, two different ways. Oh, That's come the on, level Brandon. of incompetence that you we're know, dealing with here. Yeah, but you know, the classic, you know, left-wing smear tactics, you know, when you're using word and you accidentally hit accept on the misspelling of a word and then it automatically corrects multiple words to an incorrect spelling? That's never happened to you before a major lawsuit, Brandon? Come I on. Just, I, like, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. I mean, so I've, well, let's, <laughs> I've been let's, reading. <laughs> let's attack the merits of, of the filings again. Like there, there's like a, a Twitter list of legal experts that has been, um, I think it was compiled again. I, I've mentioned Mark Elias's name a couple different times. He's the leader of Democracy Docket. He's the one who's keeping track of how many of these cases Trump has won and lost. So are um, these, wait, wait, I have a quick procedural type yeah. question. So are these cases considered Trump cases or is it since Sidney Powell, I believe she's filing them under some. That's a good distinction. It, look, she has a, a, I think it's, I can't remember the name of the organization, defending the Republic or something like that. Yes. So these, you're right. These cases are not on behalf of like Trump for America or whatever his campaign name is, but they're getting to the same thing, right? They're trying to get emergency injunctive relief to prevent certification or overturn it. Again, remember, Michigan, Georgia, and Pennsylvania have already certified their elections. It's done. And all of these courts, with zero exceptions, when it comes to asking the court to throw out tens or hundreds of thousands of ballots, they all just haven't said we're not doing that. They've said there's no evidence to support your claim. And furthermore, like the ruling that came down from the Trump appointed judge, he didn't just say that there was no evidence. He said, you're not even being specific with the claims that you're making. You're asking for this extraordinary amount of relief to disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of people based on what you can't even articulate it. That's how little people should be putting into these cases. They're absolute fucking garbage. And it's sad that there is a huge number of people who are hanging with every word that Sidney Powell says, hoping and praying that President Trump will get a second term. This is actually really sad. I mean, there are people who are glued to Newsmax, who are glued to OANN, hoping and praying that Trump is going to get a second term. He's not going to. It's 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 sad. It's really, so really I'm, disgusting. I'm, I'm scanning. I was reading the complaint this morning from Sidney Powell and the suit that she filed in Georgia. And I'm, I'm just was looking through it because there's some very interesting uh, roads that she chooses to go down. Is there? You know, she she is directly attacking 
the governor, Brian Kemp, and Who's claiming, like the biggest fucking Trump supporter in the world. I know. That's the crazy thing about it. But so on specifically what she's attacking is their procurement of these uh, Dominion voting machines. And she actually, in this complaint, goes into how Hugo Chavez loved this company and, you know, said that this was the perfect way that you could steal an election. And she's trying to insinuate that because someone, you know, this is called hearsay. I think there were, there's been multiple court cases where judges have said this is hearsay, right? Like you don't have evidence. You heard something from Correct. someone who heard something. So the argument essentially is because Hugo Chavez at some point said that a process similar to what this voting machine may or may not use could be used for voting fraud. That is evidence that voter fraud in fact did occur and that these machines are totally susceptible to hacking and tampering. And because of that, the election just needs to be thrown out and, you know, the state government, the state legislators should be able to appoint whatever, whoever they want to represent, you know, the, the presidential candidate that they think won the election just based on what they think, right? Look, Not based on votes, but based on what they think and feel. And look, I think that this is all a really good example of confirmation bias, right? Because people who want Trump to win, it doesn't matter what the evidence shows. You can basically just make a claim. You can say the election was fraudulent and Trump should have won. And then what people are doing is they're saying that the lack of evidence for that is proof that it's being covered up. Therefore, he must have won. And look, it's even more worrying than that. There was a dude on Twitter who I've had conversations with years ago when Trump was first elected. He struck me as a relatively reasonable, you know, person. He supported Trump, but who's willing to engage and have conversations. The the kind of ex the kind of what the word I'm looking for, um, not extremism. Uh, what's the word when the radicalization of some of these Trump supporters? Uh, right. He linked to an article that was making an argument for why Trump should be declaring emergency powers and just staying in office anyway. Screw the courts. Screw legislatively appointed electors. Trump should unilaterally declare that I'm not leaving. Like that's I would honestly let me just say let me say clearly I would love for Trump to try that because I don't think it would go down very well luckily. Um it, we're in just such a strange place right now and I think you have to understand this in part through the lens of what Trump is. He is a showman. He is a product of television. You know, he is not this self-made billionaire that people thought they were electing. He is a guy who is an invention of The Apprentice, right? The If you watch, I had never in my life watched an episode of The Apprentice until a couple of years ago after Trump won the election. I was just curious, like a lot of people like Trump and I guess followed that show. The way that he acts on The Apprentice, which is a ridiculous TV show, is the exact way that he acts as president of the United States. It is so horrifying. Yeah. So for Trump, I think part of it is like, yeah, maybe he has a plan and like he had some people whispering in his ear that like, man, if we could throw enough chaos in this, if maybe we could win a lawsuit if we throw enough of them out there, maybe we'll get, you know, a judge that's willing to take up one of our claims or, you know, maybe we could win on a technicality or at the very least, maybe we could delay, you know, the electoral college from voting and maybe we could get, you know, our own slate of electors in there or whatever. But it, I, I think that even maybe gives Trump too much credit 
Part of it might just be Trump doesn't want to talk about how he failed, right? Trump doesn't, he's a loser. Like he lost the election, he's a loser. And he does not want to sit there and, you know, be a gracious loser because he can't. Right. So and this I, makes a lot more sense for him as a person. And that's why I, I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but like that one of his advisors should tap on his shoulder and present some way that Trump can pretend like he's maintaining control in this, right, to say that. I'm giving up my win in this election or something like that to let him pretend that he's the one making the decision and he's the one in control because what's going to end up happening if he continues resisting this, he will literally be thrown out, dragged out of the Oval Office by uh, by the military. I mean, he's going to be – and that's why I think that when the reporters were calling him on, look, are you going to leave if the Electoral College votes for Biden? He was kind of like, oh, you know that I will. Of course I will. Like, And he said it almost like – reflexively it was it was a little window into he he knows he lost but he's thought of it yeah yeah absolutely that's what i thought when i heard that too he was like he's because he's gone through all of these possible scenarios in his head and he's thought well that would look really bad if i was like dragged out of the white house right like that would make me look really weak and and awful of course he's not gonna let that happen the scary thing is how many people believe this and that you know, elected officials are repeating these conspiracy theories. We have Republicans from Pennsylvania, from Georgia, who are filing suits now. I mean, these are like elected officials who are repeating these conspiracy theories. We're in a tough place, man. Like, and I, I think that there's maybe we can have an episode on like, what are our proposed legal fixes to prevent something like this from happening again? I've actually have a little running list. And I'd love to talk about it. But uh, for today, we probably don't have time. But yeah, it's a, it's a weird, we're in a weird spot. It's definitely so. And so that's Trump world, right? Trump world has continued. It's almost like uh, that scenario where you have two popes at the same time, right? You've got these two scenarios. You, I, I walk I walk over to Trump world and I'm just like, holy shit, the sky's on fire. Like there's, there's fireballs raining down, everybody's screaming. Then I walk over to Joe Biden's world and I'm like, oh, here's nice grandpa. He's just like calmly like talking about. <laughs> he's just like calmly. And he's not, the funny thing is like Biden is such a, like he has really proved to be a good guy. Like he has no interest in saying anything bad about Trump. You know, anything that he has said that's, that's criticism, he has leveled it in a very calm it's been incredibly and, measured yeah yeah and just and not demeaning even just sort of a like you know well it would be better for trump if he would you know accept this but you know either way we're going forward so i so biden is forming his cabinet and this has been super interesting for me to watch because i'm you know i'm i'm glad that we're going to finally be able to get off the trump train honestly i've never in my life suffered from heartburn or gastritis symptoms but but as trump the last over especially since the election I'm just feeling sick to my stomach with this stuff. And I just want to get back to like normal government functioning. Let's get some programs in place. Let's address the economy. Let's address what's going on with coronavirus. So Biden is starting to form his cabinet. He's made a couple of appointments. And uh, I got to needle you here a little bit, Brandon. Joe has poured cold water on the idea of Bernie or Warren in his cabinet. And how do you feel about that? Since I know you're a proud progressive. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Bernie Sanders volunteer. I mean, I woke up early before work. Socialist. I, a democratic socialist, card carrying, dues paying. 
I woke up early. I want to see the card. I've never seen the card. Uh, I want to see it. Cause... They didn't actually send a card. They sent like a welcome packet, though. <laughs> a welcome packet, yes. <laughs> they, they, they did. I, <laughs> I woke up early before work to volunteer sending texts and making calls to people on the East Coast to get Bernie Sanders elected. So, yeah, I'm a huge supporter. I'm not surprised by this. I'm not surprised that Joe Biden is not filling his cabinet with progressives. I'm not one of those people who is freaking out over the fact that a pro-establishment, complete institutionalist, 45-year member of the Senate is filling his cabinet with people who have been doing their job for a really long time and are highly competent. Like, I don't have an issue with that. Yes, I wish that some of them were more progressive. Yes, I do think there is somewhat of a danger in the things that we don't like about institutionalism or that we don't like about liberalism, big L, that if you get people who are highly competent, you can actually, um, you know, you can do things that are against kind of the public interest and, and do them more effectively. And I, I hear that from progressives and I get that, but I'm just not freaking out about it. I, I am, I am, I'm with you. I am ready to get to the point where that's the kind of stuff that is getting my outrage and not someone who's attempting a coup. So yeah, short, exactly. Short well, answers, I mean, and to be totally, to be totally honest with you, I, I would have loved to see Elizabeth Warren, you know, run, run the treasury. Um, I, I think obviously both Bernie and Warren, I, Bernie wanted to, to join the labor department, right? He wanted secretary of labor, right. which I think he would have been fantastic at, but the argument that Joe Biden made, and it might be, it, it may actually be a, a, a good argument, honestly, is that he doesn't want to remove these two outspoken, incredibly strong voices from the Senate, especially at a time when the Senate is, you know, it's a little unstable for the Democrats. And I want to get to that. I want to talk a little bit about the races in Georgia, because obviously right now, just to remind everybody, the Senate remains in the in the it hangs in the balance. And the uh, basically the results of the two elections, the runoff elections that are going to take place in January in Georgia will determine who controls the Senate. It's either going to be, you know, if if Democrats can pick up both those seats, it's going to be 50-50 with uh, Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker. So, I mean, pulling Bernie or Warren out of a seat right now, probably not really a good idea. I mean, just politically, what do you think about that? I think I... It, I think it depends on the state on who would replace them. There are some states where the governor chooses the replacement and there's a special election. So it would depend on how, quote unquote, safe that seat is and then also what the process is in that state for naming a replacement. I Look, I think that Joe Biden wouldn't want to pick either of those two for his cabinet anyway. I just don't. Which You're is fine. so mean. That is so mean. That's his choice. And look, I, <laughs> I don't have any doubt that there are going to be some things about the Biden administration that I do not like. There are going to be some things about his administration that I don't think are progressive enough. I'm okay with that, and I'm totally fine with putting pressure on him when it warrants it. And I, again, I'm looking forward to when that is getting the bulk of my energy and attention. Um, but no, I'm not freaking out about it. And look, there's some things about Biden where he is more progressive than he's been in the past. And if there's anything about Biden as a politician, you can say he's not totally resolute and steadfast in every one of his political views, he has changed over time. And I think that that's a good thing, right? And so whether it's from student loan relief, whether it's to acknowledging that climate change is a thing and putting money into it, whether it's having to do with people having access to education um, and people having access to food, like anything you could name that progressives have been fighting for for a really long time. He's not perfect on those issues, but he's better than he has been. And again, like I'm just I'm not trying to be a Joe Biden cheerleader, but I'm just trying to be real about it. 
Well, one thing that's been interesting for me about his cabinet appointments is that, you know, a lot of them are people that I haven't really heard of. They're people who have, like you said, an incredible amount of experience. They've been, uh, you know, deputy heads of departments. They've been in the Obama administration in various roles, um, with the exception of Janet Yellen, who who ran the Fed previously. And I think, you know, she's she's probably a, a good nomination. For Secretary of State, he, he nominated Tony Blinken. Had you ever heard of Tony Blinken before? Uh, I'm blinking on that one. Yeah, I'm totally, I was totally blanking. Well, you know, Secretary <laughs> of State is the head of foreign affairs. It's basically the, our face to the world, right? This is the person who goes and meets with heads of heads of state in other countries. And, and basically, I think this is a job that the right wing may not understand very well or value. They have this term globalist that they use as a smear. And, they, and you hear it over and over again in various corners of the internet. You're a globalist. They're a globalist. And Trump countered that with his, you know, in quotes, America first sort of mentality. I, I just want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, so Secretary of State, I mean, do you really want someone in that job who doesn't believe in cooperating with other countries? Is that an effective person to have in that role? Well, it seems odd, right? I mean, this is 2020. We have the internet. The world is connected. We rely on countries for trade. We rely on countries for net, for for national security and world security. So to claim that America can just pack up its toys and go home and live on its own island, totally uncoordinated with the rest of the world, is really dumb. And it plays into kind of the worst, um, the worst instincts of people who wish that America were number one by a mile and were able to set policy and direction for the entire world. And if you don't like us, then you're against us. And that's just not the world that we live in anymore. And it never will be again. So the need for coordination, the need to be partnering with other countries is getting more and more important as America's relative power in the world is weakening. And whether or not people want to acknowledge that is irrelevant. That's what's happening. So yeah, diplomacy and coordination is literally more important now than it ever has been. So yeah. I, Let me make a, a specific point about that. So recently, you know, a couple of weeks ago, this RCEP, Asian Pacific uh, countries, came together and joined a trade pack that Obama was attempting to spearhead towards the end of his second term. And when Trump came into office, he just threw that all away. And so now the United States is not involved. And this is a huge, I mean, this is a negotiation between, we're talking like China, New Zealand, uh, Australia, a bunch of other Asian Pacific countries. And the United States is totally divorced from any role to play in this pact, which means we have no influence over it. And maybe Biden can, you know, get in there and do some negotiating. But Obama's point, you know, prior to leaving was, look, if the United States is involved in these discussions, yeah, we may need to give up some small measure of our, in quotes, freedom, but we'll also be able to impart uh, our values or at least implore our trading partners to follow some of the things that we value. And our influence around the world is waning. Sorry, giving up your seat at the table is not a power move. Exactly. And I think, like you said, you said, pick up your toys and go home. I mean, that is that is what Trump literally will do. He'll leave. You know, he'll huff and puff and he'll leave. At the recent G20 meeting, he wasn't even present for the section on coronavirus. Apparently, he doesn't feel like he has anything to learn there, right? He went and played golf during that section. 
it's, I just, I don't see what we gain. I mean, yeah, if you, if you at least participate in these talks, maybe you end up walking away, but it just seems like in a lot of, in a lot of regards, Trump isn't even willing to sit down with people. He thinks that, you know, if, if they're going to come to me with a great deal, then I'll take it. But otherwise I don't, I don't have the time, you know, and I just don't think that's the way we should conduct ourselves. Just coming back to the position of Secretary of State, I mean, these are fairly high-profile people. Obama had had Hillary Clinton in that role and John Kerry. Trump, you know, I, I think a little bit of a downgrade. He had Rex Tillerson, who ended up being, in my opinion, a fairly a fairly good Secretary of State for a guy who was, you know, CEO of an oil company for pretty much his whole life. <laughs> and now we have Mike Pompeo. And I know you know about Mike Pompeo. Um, I do. Yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about the guy who's Secretary of State right now under Trump. Well, one thing I can say is that recently when he was asked, you know, in his duties as Secretary of State, how they would approach a transition to a Biden administration, he kind of chuckled and said, we're totally prepared to transition to a second Trump term. So that's, nice. that tells you all you need to know about him. He's a Trump loyalist, as Trump has spent four years flushing out all the institutional knowledge and professionalism from so many of these agencies. Mike Pompeo is just really another Trump puppet. That's who he is. That's his legacy forever. Well, he actually has designs on running for the presidency in 2024, so you may not have heard the last of Mike Pompeo. Small town Kansas guy, you know, rose up through the ranks, and he's ready to represent you, Brandon. He really is on the world stage and beyond. Mike Pompeo strikes me as like a dumber version of Chris Christie. Like, <laughs> you know, Chris Christie has really endeared himself to me recently. I have to say, I guess getting the getting the Rona and almost dying can really change your mind on whether you want to go along with utter lies and bullshit on the national stage, huh? Well, yeah, and Chris Christie, <laughs> as much as I disagree with him on many, many things, like he's not dumb. He, the dude is smart. He's very, very, no, very smart. Yeah. Which I, again, I respect it, him. Yeah, well, it kind of goes back to this thing about like, is it better to have someone you don't agree with who's dumb and incompetent and bumbles, right? Or someone who's smart and maybe won't say crazy stuff, but maybe more effective in getting their policies passed that you don't agree with, right? So that's always a balance there, but yeah. I can't imagine it's ever in your benefit to have someone dumb in a prominent role like Secretary of State. <laughs> you wouldn't think so, but yeah. I, I Anyway, I... Just to repeat what we've said over and over again, I am looking forward to when Biden's cabinet picks and his policy positions are the things that are giving me heartburn, are the things that I am protesting, are the things I'm spending energy thinking about. I'm very much looking forward to that day. Yeah. So and just to finish this up, so the secretary of state that uh, Biden has nominated is, is Tony Blinken. He's, you know, worked under previous administrations. He was deputy secretary of state under President Barack Obama. He knows the job. He knows what to do. And he is, you know, let's use the term globalist. I, I don't think that that's a bad word, honestly. I mean, that you would want to work with other countries around the world. So I think he's going to be a return to normalcy. I've been happy with it. I'm a bit of a centrist anyway, so I'm not looking for anything crazy. I'm just looking for Trump to honestly leave and take his pack up his clown show with him. So let's one, move one, on one more, a little. One more quick thing on that, just philosophically, yeah. because you said you're kind of a centrist and you want to return to normal. There are those in the progressive wing that say that kind of thinking is dangerous, that that kind of thinking is what brought us Trump. And I totally understand that, that to buttress the institutions that have led to so much inequity and racism and people not getting health care and people not getting food and education. I understand why returning to that doesn't sound appetizing. What I would argue is that if you're trying to go from point A to point B, it's a lot harder to get from an autocracy, which Donald Trump very much wants to install, to get from that 
to democratic socialism than it is to get from big L liberalism to democratic socialism. I, I would argue it's easier to pull people toward the things you believe in if we're starting at a more stable and a more sane place. So again, we well, can maybe yeah, talk about that in future Honestly, episodes. we're at the point now where we're the next election. I mean, we're debating whether democracy is on the table or not. That's where Trump has brought us. That's literally where us, we are now, yes, right? He's That's brought insane. us to a place where we are going to litigate our elections if we don't like the results. I mean, just imagine, I mean, this same argument occurred, you know, in 2016. Imagine what the last four years would have been like under Hillary. Is there any measure where things would have not been better? Just on a, just, I mean, maybe the stock market wouldn't have flown as high, but like, I guarantee you coronavirus would have been handled better, right? And the, the stock challenges, market would probably be higher now because of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Fewer it's very well. I mean, one in six small businesses probably wouldn't be closed. Right. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I hope that we can get away from these, you know, all or nothing type arguments politically, especially on the left. I mean, we, we need our centrist Democrats. Honestly, if you were to really nail me down, I, I end up pretty far to the left. And I think you know that, but it's fun for me to act like I'm some sort of like institutionalist centrist. Um, so we're transitioning. Um, would you say what Trump is doing is sabotage? Like, would you use that word as far as putting up roadblocks in front of Joe Biden, not allowing his team to connect, you know, basically undermining the results of the election so that people don't trust Biden when he comes in? Do you, would you say that that's sabotage? There's no doubt in my mind. And there's no oh. doubt in my mind that if Trump could pour gasoline on the government and light the matches, he's walking out the door that he would do it. <laughs> yeah, he probably would. <laughs> he really would. Yeah. No, there's no doubt. He doesn't care. Yeah, it's he's he's looking for a showstopper still. And I think he is still grasping and, and kind of hoping, uh, you know, that something's going to change. But so so let's switch gears, Brandon. Um, you know, there's been some big changes with the government, obviously, over the last four years. And the, one of the biggest starts with S and ends with court. Can you guess what it is? The super court. If the Supreme Court is truly supreme, where's the guac, ground beef, and sour cream? What is that from? Have you heard that? No. <laughs> you got to Google Schmo Yoho, you know, the Gregory brothers. You know who they are? No. Are you they just did, making this up? Oh, my God. Okay, so after the show, just just please Google uh, Gregory Brothers and then click on the Who's It Gonna Be song featuring Weird Al. And what they do is, I don't want to go too far into this, but basically they take uh, news, like uh, footage of news, video of news, and they songify it. So they take people's just spoken word and then they put it to music. And then this particular song, it was the debate between, I think the first debate between Trump and Biden. And then they have Weird Al moderating, singing verses. So that's one of the questions he asks them. It's fantastic. You definitely maybe even put it in the show at the end if you want to, but uh, definitely check it out after the show. So like it. Supreme Court, right? And uh, Amy Coney Barrett, I mean, we never really even touched on that because we were so focused on the election. But, you know, the constitution of the court is changed and it is going to be a very much more conservative court now, uh, for better or worse. And there was for a worse. ruling. What's that? For worse. Oh, for worse. Well, we'll see. It depends on your perspective. So we could talk about a specific case. I mean, I don't think Amy Coney Barrett has had the chance to rule on a, a, whole, a huge number of cases yet. You know, she's just getting started. But there was a, a case that was brought to the Supreme Court, Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn versus Cuomo. And do you want to fill me in a little bit, Brandon, on what the uh, sort of the general thoughts on this case were? Yeah, the, the claim is basically that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, overstepped his bounds in putting some COVID restrictions on gatherings. So 
the specific restrictions were limiting religious gatherings to either 10 or 25 people. That was based on these zones that were constructed by government officials and public health experts. It was a way to kind of differentiate where the spread of COVID may be harder to contain or slightly easier to contain. So basically, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the case is arguing that those restrictions on religious gatherings were unconstitutional and an, an unconstitutional overstepping uh, and an infringement of First Amendment rights. Is that a fair summary of it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, so yeah, basically, just to recap what you said, if there's if there's a high level of coronavirus in a given area and it is deemed a red zone, they were limiting religious gatherings to 10 people. And in, in the orange zones or the yellow zones, they were limiting, limiting these gatherings to 25 people, which if you're running, you know, a church, that's not very many people. So um, for so, the life of me, I can't understand why churches would not have gone online at this point, especially in New York. Like, I don't really understand that. But, you know, I think these religious Some of them institutions, have, to be fair, right? Yeah, and like, I, 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 yeah, exactly. Now, in I want to get into some of the meat of the argument because this is actually really interesting. I read the Supreme Court decision and then, you know, you can read the dissenting opinion and and the uh, agreeing opinions and well, really quick all, just uh, what was the decision? How many people on which side and I mean So basically it was it's a 5-4 split and okay. Roberts, you know, Chief Justice Roberts is I guess siding with the liberals on this, which he may be finding himself doing more frequently, but because of Amy Coney Barrett instead of RBG, you know, now this case is is decided in the affirmative, which basically limits the governor, Governor Cuomo's ability to limit these religious institutions to uh, to 10 and 25 people at a gathering. So I read the opinion and I read the arguments and one of the arguments that, you know, and I read it was really interesting because you can read specific dialogue from Kavanaugh from, uh, you know, all of the other Supreme Court justices. I thought Gorsuch was very well written. I thought Kavanaugh didn't write that well, (laughs) for what that's worth. But, you know, the argument that they're making is, okay, so they're putting these restrictions on religious institutions, but a big box store down the street, there's no absolute limit on the number of people. It's just more of a, like, you got to wear masks, you know, it's the six-foot rule and all this stuff. And so the religious institutions were arguing that they were being unfairly targeted by some of these rules, and the Supreme Court essentially agreed with that. Um, I, I disagree with that, and you you agree with the majority opinion, correct, on this? So I do agree with the majority opinion, and I also thought that the well, counter-arguments— I also thought that the counter arguments offered by um, the liberal justices, um, Elena Kagan and uh, Sonia Sotomayor, I thought they were really weak logic, really. But well, yeah, let's, go ahead. Let's go ahead and tell me apart. why you agree. No, let's. Yeah, here's where I want to start with this. So first of all, I disagree with the decision. I think. You know, churches, your freedom to express your religion is not absolute, right? No First Amendment right is absolute. The classic, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater for a good reason, right? So there are some restrictions. Another one would be if my religion says that I am allowed to kill people, right? That's not allowed. So it's like, I get that it's not that extreme, but there are limits to our constitutional rights. And so I disagree. I think that public health experts... 
should be able to, in a pandemic, limit how many people come together. And I don't think that that should be particularly controversial, especially to your point you said earlier, people can gather virtually, people have had to work virtually, people have had to run the government virtually. That's something that you can do. Here's one specific thing. I want to tick through a couple of specific arguments. And by the way, the majority opinion was unsigned, but some legal scholars suspect that it actually is Amy Coney Barrett, even though it's not signed as such. Here's a quote from the ruling. Um, Granting relief would not harm the public interest. So the argument is, you know, overturning this COVID restriction would not harm the public interest. Really? We're in a fucking pandemic. How is that not harmful to the public interest if you have people coming together and gathering? That didn't make any sense to me. Can you defend that specific point? I think that's, uh, ridic so I think I that's think a ridiculous argument to make. Okay, so I, I'm going to attack you personally. You're not a man of God. You just aren't. I know that you're not. And so you don't understand, <laughs> and neither am I. And so you and I, but we don't understand. Not, hold, on, hold on, that's not my point, though. The point is that granting relief would not harm the public interest. It, granting relief is overturning the restriction. The harm to the public interest is that COVID spreads more easily. We're in a pandemic, so I don't see how granting relief would not harm the public interest of course it that's the whole point of having the restrictions i well one of the one of the points that gorsuch brought up in his arguments was that it had not been proven that outbreaks were occurring at religious institutions number one and number two it it is not it it is not fair to apply differing standards to those of religious faith than folks who are shopping at the big box store down the street in the example that i brought up so yeah for okay me, let's talk about that one then like, well, like, okay, but wait, wait, hold, hold up just okay. a second. People's, so Article 1, you know, Constitution, religious freedom should not be abridged. How far are you going to take that? I mean, so obviously there's, there's oh, some limit. Oh, go put on a powdered wig. There's some limit of, of how far you'll take that, right? Okay, if my religion says that every Sunday I get together and I participate in mass and I participate in communion and I share a sip of wine with 50 other people and that's my religion, okay, fine. Like, you know, you can make that decision for yourself. If my religion says that I eat babies, you know, like the stuff that I do with uh, all the Hillary Clintons and Barack Obamas at the secret <laughs> government cabal, then obviously that goes a little bit too far for your religion, right? I think you would agree that you want to live in a country where people's religious uh, observations are protected, right? Yes. That, you, would, you would agree with that, of course. Yes. In, so, norm at, in normal times, that would not be an issue. We're not in normal times. We're in a literal one in, gen one in 100 year pandemic that currently does not have a cure. Yeah, that's, right. That's, but, that's, and, that, and is people, the, that is the specific public interest being harmed by allowing groups to come together, which, again, I think that specific argument is ridiculous. We could talk about the comparison to stores, but can continue. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, part of part of the opinion said that they had that Cuomo had failed to show that this is actually causing public harm. I mean, I see conceptually how it could if a lot of, if there were, you know, COVID outbreaks in churches and people got sick and if people died, but they couldn't show that that had happened. Um, and I just thought, part, I thought it was interesting. Why, part of the reason why it wasn't happening is because some of these churches and it's in the opinion that they were ahead of the curve enforcing stricter safety protocols than the state required. So what exactly is their issue, right? Like this whole, like, this entire argument 
falls apart because they're claiming that there's irreparable injury, quote unquote, that denying relief would lead to irreparable injury. That's false. And they literally say it in the opinion, saying that we have stricter restrictions than this. So then what's the issue? The issue is about control and being able to decide. It's not about a specific injury. Like the, this entire legal argument is insane to me. And I'm surprised that you agree with it. But but Carol, no, it's, it's not insane, though. I mean, why should the church be held to a higher standard than the Safeway? I mean, explain Let's that talk about to me that. then. Okay, that's that's pretty easy, Alex. People need to eat. People need to yeah. be able to, people and need this to goes be able back to, to you being plumbing. this goes back to you being a heathen and not understanding that they need to eat the food of the body of Christ and people need to participate in their religion to feel whole and I actually am sensitive to that argument and also I don't I, honestly I want to live in a country the same thing at all I, I want to live in a country where people within reason have, I cannot eat my food over Zoom I need to actually eat food. <laughs> Right. But I mean, again, it's not your it's not something that that you and I particularly value or engage in. But for folks who do, there is a biological difference between sustenance and building religious community. Those are not the same thing. One of them will kill you. Who gets to be the arbiter of that decision? Right. Does Brandon get to decide? And then if if we go down this road of saying (laughs) if we go down the road of saying, okay, you know, the state of New York can decide, you know, who who can gather and where they can gather it just it does feel a little bit like a slippery slope to me the interesting really interesting thing about this uh this opinion is that these rules are not currently being enforced in new york and that's the thing that's really kind of interesting about it and i think the reason why liberal groups disagree with with the decision is it's probably a slippery slope that will head us you know further down religious rights which which could leak into other areas right so then if the argument became you know well because there's an abortion clinic in my town and my church is there and I disagree with it, you should shut the abortion clinic down, something crazy like that. You know, at that point, I wouldn't agree with it. But in in this ruling, this very narrow ruling, I actually do agree with the Supreme Court that if, you know, people who go to that church understand the risks of coronavirus, is if they don't, if they haven't been and educated on it enough. Store and then someone else gets it. Like the, the whole point is that COVID is highly contagious. The whole point about balancing personal liberty with the good of the community is that this is not something we can control and guess who agrees with me on this the fucking pope okay like well pope- i'm not catholic so that doesn't really add any weight to 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 your argument with or, me i'm sorry who was the plaintiff <laughs> in this case was it the roman catholic diocese of brooklyn oh oops literally the pope Agrees. But the Pope is divorced. I mean, the power structure of the Catholic Church. I mean, do Catholics follow every single thing the Pope says? No, because I'm sure some of them use birth control. Well, I let mean, me, let me let me just squeeze this quote out of out of Popey Francis here. He said, "I do that, like Pope Francis." No, he he's ripping governments for not putting the well-being of their people first during the pandemic. He's calling for a complete overhaul of the current political and economic systems. And he says, quote, it's all too easy for some to take an idea, in this case, personal freedom, and turn it into an ideology creating a prism through which they judge everything. That is exactly what happened in this Supreme Court ruling. Because again, we're talking about the balance of people's personal freedom, the religious freedom to specifically to come together and gather in close proximity with one another, one another, balancing that 
with the public health. And I don't think it's enough to say there hasn't been a massive outbreak in one of these churches yet, because in the same breath, they've already said that there are restrictions that are stricter than what's being called for here. So it, the, the okay, okay, slow down. Let me give you a hypothetical. You're governor, okay, Governor Brandon, and you're in New York, and you pass this law, and you want to enforce it, and you just heard that the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn is going to have mass with 290 people in attendance. What are you going to do? Are you going to send the police down there? What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? Let's hear it quick. Well, that's the thing is that there are some laws and policies that don't have a like first strike infinite resources enforcement response. There's a lot of education, right? There's prosecutorial discretion. There's a lot about our society that our laws and policies don't say that if you break a law, you're immediately going to jail. If I'm jaywalking, probably not going to be enforced. Like there are a lot of things in society that work that way. And our society is not necessarily held together by the letter of each law and the letter of the punishment. Some of it is just about saying these are the restrictions and these are the rules. And look, if it were something where the governor were saying you're not allowed to be Catholic, right? We both agree that that's wrong. If the governor were to say you're not allowed to get hop on a Zoom meeting with your congregation, I think we'd all agree that that's wrong. Literally, this is trying to balance something. Your worship can be done in a different way, can be done virtually, right? Like it's not preventing you from being religious. And the comparison to stores, I think, is dumb because, again, people need to eat. People need to be able to fix their heating so they can be heated and fix their plumbing so they can flush a toilet. It's not the same thing. And again, the argument, the specific arguments in this ruling, I think are very, very flimsy. So uh, in the dissenting opinion, Sotomayor basically says, um, and it's Kagan and Sotomayor who, who authored it. You know, so many people have died from COVID already that we need to do every possible, you know, take every possible avenue to prevent any more cases. And that's their argument. I just, I, I fundamentally disagree at abridging freedom of religious institutions. I think it's dangerous to do. And I don't think it's necessary. I mean, the, this case shows that it really wasn't necessary. I, I probably need to do more research into why this case was brought to the Supreme Court. It it it, it didn't seem like it, anything immediately was going to change. And that's but the, that's I think the, the state thing of so odd to me is that the irreparable harm that's being referenced, there is no irreparable harm just because your point was just made, right? Is that this wouldn't, this is actually not changing anything on the ground. This is about making a point. That's what this yeah, is. Yeah, and, and it's a point that I agree with. I'm glad you said, yeah, you clarified that. It's a point that I actually agree with. I think the state of New York can issue, you know, guidelines for people. I think people should be free not to follow those guidelines in certain regards. Now, okay, let's say you're walking into a hospital and there's a sign on the door that says you need to wear a mask in here. Well, you need to wear a mask. And if you don't wear a mask, you need to leave. And if you won't leave, I think you should be arrested, right? I would agree with that. But in your own church, I think you should be able to make an, an assessment that of what you think is safe. That doesn't make any sense. You're literally saying that people should be allowed to gather in large groups if it has to do with the religion. These are the same people who are going out into our stores, who are going to our hospitals to seek care. We have a healthcare system that's already being heavily burdened by this, right? There are hospitals across the nation, ICUs that are filling up here in Oregon at OHSU. They've had to repurpose some of their intensive care units specifically to deal with COVID patients, which is the same thing we were seeing earlier in the year. And you're saying that we should allow people to come together and gather when there are alternatives to doing that? That doesn't make any sense to me. To me, they don't is, want they don't want your alternatives. And the thing is, we can't it's not protect about people that, though, from affects me and how it affects people who are at the hospital it's how it affects you know grandma like this is we, not this is our not grandma, something that Brandon, you can you, we both know our vacuum. grandma's already dead okay so i wish you wouldn't Alex. bring 
I wish you wouldn't bring Grandma Audrey into this. What if she were <laughs> resuscitated, <laughs> came no, back to I just, life? I I I still I still agree with with the assessment of the court, and I'm and I'm so sure there's going to be. You, you agree? With, so let me ask you this. If this were to get worse, right? If the if the pandemic, let's say that we're into January. Oh, I already know where you're going. Can I just subvert you? Yes. If this were to get worse, what I think the state of New York should do is pass a law that applies to everyone equally and every business equally. And I think that's fair. That's exactly what I believe. Is that where but, you were going with that? Not really. I mean, sort of, but that's, okay. it, that doesn't make sense to me. Again, like I think that the ability to worship in person, we're not saying you can't worship, that you can't think whatever you want that you can't connect with people virtually or i don't even know if the i know but it. you're you're making that determination for someone else and you're saying oh we have this other thing that's just you're as good but what the, the public what, interest what, that's the what balance. the religious institutions are saying is the zoom doesn't do it for us it's not enough it doesn't it doesn't really embody that spiritual connection that we need that's fine and i'm well, sensitive I, to that argument i would say that in fact people need to eat and so you can't treat a store and a church the same way okay so i i get it if you fall differently on the spectrum of balancing the right of someone's individual ability to worship in a specific way, balancing that with Well, you know health. I do because I'm an atheist. I mean, but I'm not religious. <laughs> I, I would go back to this. I would just say it sounds to me, and I, I love you, dear brother, that your argument conceptually is actually disconnected from what is in this specific ruling because it says things like the public interest would not be harmed. That's not true, right? It specifically says that they have stricter restrictions than what's being called for. So I would just say that the concept of what you're arguing, I think is disconnected from this specific ruling, which I think is pure shit. Okay, last thing. When they say that the public uh, the public good will not be harmed, they're saying that you could not, Governor Cuomo, you could not point to any specific evidence that shows that you know giving us it, relief from this restriction will cause harm. And, and I didn't read any evidence that did. I mean, conceptually, I understand where it's coming from. Getting a lot of people together is exactly how COVID is spread. But if you're in a giant, you know, you're in a giant service and everybody's spaced out by eight feet and wearing masks, that's probably pretty safe if you've got good ventilation. I honestly, you, I don't think you have to make a specific apples to apples comparison between outbreaks in churches and harm. I think you can look and public health experts have been doing this, looking at what the appropriate number of people it is to come together that can keep people safe while balancing that with the need for people to come together. And so you can look at other instances in which people who gathered in groups over 10 or groups over 25, where there have been outbreaks that have happened, for example, in rural Oregon, in churches, for example, right? You can- That wasn't those... brought up in this case, but That's I'm going to- okay. I'm just saying like- that... I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you have the last word here and you can, you, have, you can sum it up in one sentence because I want to move on to the next subject because we don't, our time is waning. I disagree. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. That was great. That was an even better argument than I was hoping it was going to be. So hoping to get some more into some more arguments with you later, Brandon. Now, quickly, let's go back to something we can agree on, which is how much we don't like Donald Trump and how much we would like the Democrats to take the Senate. palate cleanser. Yeah, oh, that was great. That felt good. Felt like old times, didn't it, bro? Poli Sci for even more of these arguments. And yeah, once we're, once we're past the election, I'm sure you and I will have more to disagree with, disagree about, and I'm looking forward to that. So yeah. Oh, me too. It's one of my favorite things in life, disagreeing with my bro. Um, okay, so Senate. Let's talk about it. Georgia. Okay, there's a couple of really cool races going on down there. Warnock versus Loeffler. Ossoff versus Purdue. Um, which one of those two do you want to kind of give a little bit of illumination to? And I'll take the other one. 
Oh, that's right. You asked me to do some research on this. Um, I will take the Purdue versus Ossoff. Okay, go for it. I, I You know, I, I'm going to give you a compliment right here. I think that I actually see a little bit of Ossoff in you. I could see if you were a politician how you would. <laughs> he's fantastic. Did you? I don't know if you've seen any of the debates between him and, and David Purdue. It's but funny the, the guy is the fantastic. No, he he's super sharp. Um, that's a heck of a compliment. Yeah, speaking of deba- debates, uh, Purdue, the Republican, is rejecting Ossoff call to have debates, partly because there's a viral clip that was making the rounds in their last debate where Ossoff absolutely obliterated Purdue. I don't know if you got a chance to see this. Um, I did see it. Yep. It was fantastic. He, he basically said, while people are dying, you were doing insider trading. And why are you a crook? And David Perdue just looked at him like, holy crap, that was on the nose. Like one, there was one nothing of the he lines could say. I appreciated was it. It's not just that you're corrupt, Senator. And he kind of let yes. that hang. It was just like, yeah, it was Whoa. really good. Um, so the dynamic in this race again is that yeah, there aren't going to be deb- any debates. Also, Purdue is being hampered by claims of insider trading, which is also something Leffler has been accused of as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have two very stark choices. The other thing to say though, this is a Georgia Senate race. Georgia is not the most progressive state in the union. And to that end, you know, Ossoff has on the record uh, distanced himself from defunding the police. He's distanced himself from Medicare for all. So some things that progressives care a lot about, Ossoff has distanced himself from those things. I don't blame him. He's in Georgia. He's a Democrat running in Georgia. I understand that. Let's just, I want to back up a tiny little bit. So who are these people? So David Perdue, did you know he was senior vice president of Reebok before becoming the CEO of a company called Pillow Techs? Pillow Techs basically went out of business. He flew away with a golden parachute, leaving 7,600 workers out of a job. And so he is very much an entrenched capitalist, extremely powerful guy who then became the CEO of Dollar General, which is a awful store, in my opinion. <laughs> and and his challenger is John Ossoff, who is a homegrown investigative journalist with a silver tongue, who I just think is a fantastic guy. I mean, he's, he's well-spoken. Spoken. He's heartfelt. Um, this has been a nasty, nasty race. Purdue's team put forth this advertisement uh, depicting John Ossoff with this huge digitally enhanced nose, which was basically an anti-Semitic trope because John yeah. Ossoff uh, has Jewish ancestry. So it's just a dirty, nasty race. And you're right. Purdue has refused to debate Ossoff any further because there's nothing he can say. There's nothing he can say that's going to help him. And he so he doesn't he just wants to run on. I'm the guy that's with Trump. So everybody come out and vote, vote for Trump, vote for me. Um, Loeffler is kind of in the same boat. So Kelly Loeffler is a is a high-powered individual. Her husband essentially owns the stock exchange. Did you know that? That you can own the stock exchange? I did not. <laughs> I did know that she's like a, a part owner of a WNBA team, and their players do not like her at all. Um, and good. For yeah. Them. Apparently, she sort of micromanages that team too, and is like in like pretty involved, like with you know the daily operations, which is sort of interesting and actually something I might kind of like about her. But so she was, you know. She was nominated to that seat when the senator, I can't remember the name of the senator who came before her, was ill. And so she was actually nominated by Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia. So she's an unelected senator who's just sitting in that seat. And she's quite wealthy, quite connected. And her challenger, do you know anything about Raphael Warnock? 
Uh, he is a pastor, so I know that about yes. him. So he is the pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, uh, which is the spiritual home of Dr. Martin Luther King. So a pretty, uh, pretty widely known church. And he came to notoriety in 2014 through through doing a lot of advocacy for expanding Medicaid in that state. So that's sort of how he became active politically. So, okay, the reason I want to paint this is it's such an interesting sort of like David versus Goliath story for both of these candidates and really grassroots folks taking on the establishment. It's surprising to me as an individual just looking at the choices that this is even going to be a fight, that there's even going to be a battle going on there. Yeah. But, you know, it's Georgia. So we're, we're going to see we're, we're going to see what's going to happen. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into the state. Trump's going there. Pence. Millions I don't know who would millions. want. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I just I've I've been watching the race, uh, it, just just watching things unfold and and just wondering what's going to happen. You know, it looks like the, it's basically they're both neck and neck. I mean, it's they're toss up races, both of them. So I don't know if, if you have anything else that you want to put out there. I just I wanted to talk about it a little bit because I find the races so interesting. Uh, one thing I do think is funny about these two races is that there has been kind of a groundswell from more extreme Republicans to either boycott both of these races or to write in Donald Trump's name because they think that Georgia's governor and their secretary of state, both of whom are Republicans, you know, have not done enough to give Trump a victory in a state in which he lost. And so Trump had to tweet out yesterday that the 2020 election was a total scam. We won by a lot and we will hopefully overturn the fraudulent result, but we must get out and help David and Kelly, two great people. <laughs> Otherwise we are playing right into the hands of some very sick people. I will be in Georgia on Saturday. Exclamation point. Twitter very has labeled, sick people. Twitter has labeled Wait. this tweet. Uh, it says, this claim about election fraud is disputed. And by the way, he's not in Georgia today. He's not going to be there for another week. It's just funny because <sighs> there are going to be some people who are probably not going to vote for either of the Republican candidates because they're so pissed off and Trump is trying to clean up some damage control on this. I, could it be enough possibly to tip it? Probably not. I mean, I think both yeah, Republicans let me just say are probably if, favored in this race. But if, if you're a Republican who can vote in Georgia and you're listening to this show right now, definitely write in Donald Trump. And if no, you're a Democrat... Alex, it would totally own me as a lib <laughs> for them to, to... So don't do that. Oh, it so would. We'll cry, dude. We'll cry. <laughs> I mean, and if you're a Democrat, please listen to Reverend Warnock and and Mr. Ossoff and uh, go out and vote for them. Yeah, these are such fantastic races. They really are. I mean, those are those are great candidates. So, I'm I'm just going to sit back and watch. I got my popcorn. I mean, Donald Trump, I don't need he doesn't know what his own end game is. He really doesn't. And either way, Brandon, it's time for us to come to the part of the show where you leave some parting, you know, some some parting gift to us that we can take and we can mull over through the rest of the week. So tell me, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting with bated breath. I need to know what should I focus on for the rest of the week, Brandon? Was I supposed to prepare something for this? <laughs> no, I'm just putting you on the spot. Oh, good Lord. Uh, the thing I'd want you to focus on is the website, rememberpolisci.com. That's remember P-O-L-I SCI, that's where you can find our work. Also on pretty much any podcatcher. Thank you for subscribing. If you want to hit us up with a rating, that would be dope. But yeah, rememberpolysci.com. That's where you can find our stuff. And thank you all for Man. listening. Appreciate you. 
Yeah, and we'll we'll look forward to some more arguments later. And I hope, I mean, Brandon, you got really angry. I want you to do some deep breathing exercises. Go for a run. <laughs> I know you just got off your Peloton for the last like hour. God, so you'd probably, you know, this is the second podcast in a row that someone has called that out. Look, it's an exercise bike. All right. <laughs> Come on, man. I did a 45 minute Tabata class with Robin. That's where you do. It's like two parts on one part off in these four minute blocks. So you're getting a little bit of recovery, but not quite enough to catch up and it absolutely blasts you it's uh, oh man sweating is the best thing you can do if you're anxious if you're feeling weird the election and you know you have seasonal affective disorder which i definitely do have a touch of if all of this stuff is making you feel weird just sweat it out if you're able to it it really is gloomy outside right now and also i will say peloton if you're listening you know for the low low Please price of us. five $500 an episode. Brandon and I will make this a full-on two minutes every single show. I will get on the Peloton and be <laughs> huffing and puffing as we're recording at this process. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, bye.